Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Live view uploads have officially landed in master. It looks like they're still doing some work on it, but there's several guides on how to do direct to S3 uploads, how to implement it on the server, and a lot of really cool stuff. And a lot of cool work has gone into that. So we look forward to seeing that released. I think it's been a long time coming. I've really been anticipating it. Yes, this has probably been one of the most discussed. You know, it's been conference talks going back at least one year, maybe two. I don't know. So I'm I'm super excited about this one actually finally landing and being something that we can all start using and benefiting from. Uh, also in the news, Oban Pro uh, version 051 adds canceled support and a new workflow module. Workflows uh, in Oban compose jobs together for horizontally scaled and fault-tolerant directed execution. Um, that's an Oban Pro feature, so heads up. Uh, if you're looking for that in the free stuff, you won't find it. Uh, you'll need to upgrade to Oban Pro. Pretty cool that uh, a steady, good progress is being made on Oban. Really seems like a solid uh, job library. Jason Axelson released a project called DepViz, D-E-P-V-I-Z. It's a visualization tool to help developers understand the Elixir recompilation in their projects. So it's super handy on small libraries, but perhaps even more so on large projects. And I saw that the Ash framework said that they were able to dramatically improve the compilation time by using that to help visualize and identify where they're having some things that could be improved. So it's something worth checking out. That looks really cool. I kind of want to try it out on some bigger projects. Even if it wasn't like about visualizing your dependencies, like it's still a pretty cool site, like very fluid. The graphs are pretty cool. You know, live search in there. Uh, Nice job. Last in the news, uh, Codebeam Brazil happens this past week. Um, as as of right now, uh, that uh, as I'm speaking, there are, the videos are not yet posted online, but uh, they probably will be, so look out for that. And that's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Patrick Bonk. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hello, guys. I really appreciate this opportunity to, to share my experience connected with these topics. One of the things we really wanted to talk to you about is some blog posts that you did, which were really great. And I think they're really helpful, especially as people are coming new to Elixir and Ecto and just kind of the whole ecosystem. It's some of those mistakes that you've seen and learned from around Ecto in writing good migrations, database migrations. I'm excited to talk about this. It's something I've felt the pain of myself as I've gone through and had to learn some of these things. And so hopefully we can help you, dear listener, avoid some of those pains if these are new to you. So Patrick, before we jump into that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you live, where you work, and what kind of stuff you're doing? Okay, so uh, my name is Patrick Bonk. I live in Poznań, in Poland. I work in Appunite. It's a software company here in Poznań. We build products for different industries, sectors, starting from logistics, going through healthcare, and ending up with financial we maintain long-term cooperation with startups and enterprise-level companies. I've been working there on a product from the logistics industry. The application used mainly by shippers and drivers facilitates their work and helps to manage some processes in logistics companies, thereby giving us as a team so many challenges. They are, I mean, these challenges mostly connected with improving processes in the industry, facilitating people's work and scaling the business. As the application is live and the users use it 24-7, the 
the topic of today's discussion is quite important as using migrations in a proper way uh, contributes to reliability of our systems and lack of downtimes. The system and its domain is quite complex, so each time deploying the changes, we need to do our best to predict possible scenarios and therefore decrease chances for error occurrence. You know, a bug which could prevent users from using some functionalities of the application. So you mentioned that you work for AppUnite. Um, do you work with Mache? <laughs> yes, I do. I surprise you. Uh, not only <laughs> do we work in the same company, but also we work in the same project, developing the same product. So it's a pretty nice coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know that. And so we talked with Mache um, in episode nine on decomposing models. So that is a great episode. Uh, a lot of people really enjoyed that one. So you can check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So Patrick, jumping into this topic, I'm just curious about, you know, how you learned some of these things? Are these from personal experience, projects you've worked on? You know, did you feel the pain of making some of these mistakes yourself? Uh, so when it comes to all these mistakes, I learned them while working on the project, this project from uh, logistics industry, as I don't have much experience when it comes to that professional field, and I've been working with Elixir for only two years. What were you using before Elixir? Uh, so before I worked as a network administrator, I was responsible for both public and restricted networks. And you know, I didn't feel fulfilled. I felt like I should do something else. So I found a passion in programming, developing products and helping people. So was Elixir your first kind of working programming language? Yes, it was. I mean, uh, I didn't have any experience with other programming languages. That's awesome. Because that one of the things we talk about in the Elixir community, and we talked with Milada in episode 19, where she was coming new to Elixir as a programmer. And it sounds like you're, you know, you're coming from a technical background, but you're coming to Elixir as a new programmer. And I'm just curious as to what that experience has been like for you. One question is a lot of people come to Elixir from another language, like Ruby or Python or Java, but they're all object oriented languages. So they come and they sometimes struggle with Elixir because it's functional. And, you know, objects aren't there. And how do I do this? You know, it's like they're kind of having to unlearn some things. And I'm just wondering, since you didn't have that baggage, what did you feel like learning Elixir was like? Was it, did you struggle? Where did, where did it go? Where did you enjoy it? I didn't have this problem, which you just mentioned. Elixir is really nice when it comes to syntax. Uh, the documentation is really clear. You can find a lot of courses on YouTube and so on and so forth. So... There are a lot of great books. I think that uh, my experience and improving my skills, it was really nice and uh, easy. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk about some of these things that you've learned and shared in your blog post. So maybe you can tell us about this first one, which is avoiding referencing ecto schemas during migrations. Okay. So, so as you said, firstly, I'd like to discourage all of you from using Elixir code in database migrations. Some of you probably wonder why. After all, it's much easier to use Ecto or even our API instead of writing pure SQL queries in order to update a new field in old records. Actually, I thought the same thing. One day I even created a migration where I added a new field to already existing table. And then I wrote code in Elixir, which fetches all old records 
and updates each of them with a proper value. All of it was with the mentioned migration. And I didn't see any problem with that. But fortunately, always during such processes like interfering with database structure, I make sure that the changes I want to be implemented went through code review. And so we did then. Fortunately, my teammates have already had experience with such cases and they explained to me what problems it can cause in the future. To depict the problem, let's imagine that we have this nicely written Elixir code in our migration, which updates a new field from our schema called, for instance, entries. Let's take an example from my article. It is run on our server, I mean this migration, everything went properly and all the entries field are updated. After a few months, we decide to rename that field into entries left as the current name is confusing and we are not sure what actually it represents. So this is the reason of changing the name of the field. We want to make it more explicit, which is nice, of course. Due to that, we create another migration which renames the field and we also change the name of the field in the schema, of course. Okay, everything works. So what's the problem? Now, let's wonder what will happen if we run this migration on an empty database. As you remember, in our schema, there is a field called entries left. But our first migration updates the field called entries. So execution of this Elixir code in the migration will fail and return error as there is no entry key in our, in our schema anymore. And now, until we remove Elixir code from the migration, the system won't start up. And I think this is a serious problem which actually we need to solve. Have you ever had experience with such a case? I worked at a place where we were going through a lot of schema churn. We were working on the data models, changing them too often, and we had this happen. And so we started... And, you know, the first time we didn't even learn from our own mistake, we, we thought, oh, we need to break up this, the, the table change and the data migration into separate migrations, right? So they were physically different files that could run at different times, but then we still have the same problem, right? When you go back and run all of your migrations from scratch, it doesn't work anymore. So then I would start going back and deleting the data migrations that didn't work anymore. And it just felt bad because then what? I probably deleted two or three of those before we kind of figured out the right approach. I had this crazy thought as I was thinking about this topic this morning. Like, you're, I know you're going to suggest a better way to do it, but like, what if you what if you put because your migrations are like a snapshot of what the database is at at that time, how your database is, but your schema is a snapshot of the current state of your, of your database, right? And it doesn't have any record of past, how it looked in the past. What if you, what if you wrote a schema inside of your migration? This is, this is the worst thing ever, but like the state <laughs> no, of your no. schema was also in the migration. And you referred, if you reference that schema instead of your current schema, then it would look how your migration expects it to look at the time. That's actually how I did it in Rails, old Rails applications. I, I would <laughs> define the model right there. I'd say like temporary user or something like that, right. you know, with a date stamp. And I would, I would just kind of copy and paste the fields that were necessary. A lot of it wasn't necessary as a, especially for users, obviously, like that's a huge bundle of joy. 
but yeah, then then in the day in the migration, I would just refer to that schema or that that model right there. Do the migration and move on. But you still have to be careful with that, like because uh, if I remember correctly, like it, it's still when you boot up your Rails app, like that's still in your global namespace, so like that thing still exists out there, <laughs> which is a little awkward. So that temporary schema is still could be potentially used. You're right. Right. Um, it kind of depends on how I can't I can't remember now. It's been a while, but there, there's another suggestion out there to do it in like not a migration, but in some like other task. And with Rails, that'd be something like a rake task. But in, in Ecto and Elixir, that would be something like a, I guess you could do a mixed task, but you probably didn't deploy it with mix. So you'd have to do something else like there's this this module called release tasks that are that's more you know prevalent now anyway i I don't do any of that stuff now now i i think i do what what patrick's going to suggest i liked what cade said about how the migration at in each migration file is kind of a representation of what does the database structure supposed to look like at this point you know it's as this sequence of events and the problem is really you know it comes down to that i'm always looking at my current latest code is what's deployed right? So I don't have all the different versions of the objects or, you know, modules and structs. And so that's the disconnect, right? That my my struct says, oh, I have a name field in this version, and now I change it to customer name in a later version. And when I try to reference that in my queries, it blows up. Yeah. So Patrick, what is the recommended way that you found and learned from your team as to how to solve this instead of using that schema struct in the migrations? Although I managed to avoid such issue thanks to my teammates who warned me, let's wonder what we can do if we have already deployed this kind of migration to production. Uh, For me, the only solution that comes to my mind is doing rollback of our change in the first place if we encounter the problem I've just mentioned. Then we will have time to think, of course. In such a case, we don't have too many options. Although we shouldn't amend already deployed migrations, in this situation, we probably don't have a choice. That's why we need to remove this Elixir code and replace it with pure SQL, which does what the Elixir code did. And actually, that's all. If we deploy it once again, it will be run properly without any issues. What does that look like then to say, I'm going to use pure SQL? Uh, so uh, by pure SQL, I mean that you just write simple SQL query, like from PostgreSQL, and that's all. You know, because uh, SQL uh, works only based on database structure. It knows nothing about Ecto schemas and Elixir itself. That's why while running migrations from the very beginning to the end, the database structure is changing incrementally. When it comes to the code of the project, it doesn't. During uh, during that process, the code it is the same all the time. So if we invoke to code in our migration, this code can be not up to date or contain the version of the code which didn't exist in a moment of creating the specific migration. So then this migration will fail. Let me let me just picture this. So you wrote a big string of SQL and you passed it into uh, Ecto adapters, you know, SQL.execute. I, I can't remember the exact path there, but is that basically what you did? Just in migration, you can write simple SQL query in execute 
Yeah, just execute. Yeah. Yeah, and inside of it, you can... Because yeah. it's imp- it's imported there, and it's too arity. There's an up and a down. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, you're doing it a much simpler way. <laughs> I was thinking of going straight to the adapter. Okay, so just writing a big SQL string, you know, probably here doc, and just passing it right into execute. That's uh, that's great. So that that requires you obviously to know SQL, <laughs> which yes, which right. I think um, you know with with Ecto uh, Ecto developers you know, like you and me we. We we use the Ecto DSL to construct our queries, and that's pretty similar, or, or at least more similar to SQL than other database ORMs that I've that I've used before. So it's really not, I don't think, it's that much of a stretch to go straight into the SQL and and just execute it there. That's so that's a great solution. I think that's timeless. That gets you closer to the underlying tool. If you haven't written like raw SQL before, I think that's still a good idea because it, it gets you closer to that tool that you probably rely on every day uh, anyway and, and should have a better understanding of. Really, kind of what we're talking about there is the idea of not using our Elixir code, the structs and things that are modeling the data in our application during the migrations. And that's particularly happening when we're talking about migrating data, right? Because if I'm just saying, right. add, you know, I want to add a field or rename a field, I'm not actually working with that code. When we talk about avoiding migrations to the data itself, like, you know, I can have a table with a million rows. Uh, what are some other concerns or considerations that we should make before we try to do that in our migrations? When you deploy changes to the production and the system starts up, the new migration is run in a transaction. It means that until the whole process of migrating data is finished, the changes entered by the migration are not visible by the system. Let's assume that we deployed a migration which adds a new field to already existing table and updates it for old records. Additionally, the change we have just deployed not only contains this new migration, but also the logic which uses this new field, this new field which is being added by by the migration. What if the table which migration updates contains thousands of records or even more. Then it can take several minutes, sometimes hours, and during that time, for instance, users won't be able to register themselves. Why? Because the registration process requires this new field, which although is visible in our schema instantly, right after deployment, this field, more precisely, the column, hasn't been inserted yet to our table, as the migration is still in progress. That's why each time users try to register, they get an error as the logic invokes to the column which doesn't exist yet. That is a particular problem I've run into myself, just not being aware of the uh, how much data was in our database at the time and saying, oh, you know, we discovered that we need an index. Let's add this index. You know, for performance reason, we realize we, we need this index. So we, I go to we have a migration, add this index. And then it's like takes five minutes. And the problem is, maybe it wasn't even five minutes, but it was the deployment that was was automated. So the application didn't come up in the time it was expected. So it thinks, oh, it must be bad. Like this is a bad container. I'm going to kill it and restart it again. And so then it was just like in this loop, like it won't start up. And it's just like realizing, okay, you know, so the, the short term workaround for that one was, okay, let's extend the timer let it go 
And then let's not do that again. <laughs> so that was one of those that I had to learn the hard way, which was, you know, being more aware, like adding indexes, uh, even sometimes fields, just being aware of what table it is and something about the, the nature of my database, you know, how much data is in these different tables. So I appreciate that tip. Yeah. In those situations, I've just P-SQLed into it, ran the the migration, you know, the cut just manually <laughs> like adding the the mic the the index uh just doing it you know right then and there making sure it's done in a con- uh, concurrently um if i'm adding a new table or a new column yeah just doing it manually and then deploying it with the new code and then the migration will run it'll see ah we're done we're we're, we're we've already migrated you know and and keep on going uh, so it's it's real quick but like that's not a a real like smooth operation there you know that's like manual stuff that you have to do i'd have to look this up again because it's been a while but i'm pretty sure ecto has a concurrent option that you can add to a specific migration and to an index so that it won't block everything if you happen to be doing something like an index on a big table to ease this problem but i still don't know if that's necessarily the right way to go about doing it but it does exist if you're using postgres yeah i think that's valid i mean the tools are there it's just that when you turn when you enable like concurrency like that i think it disables some of the safety checks yeah you have to turn off the transaction for the migration which could be bad (laughs) yeah so you just got to make sure everything's everything's kosher (laughs) yeah And these are just considerations and concerns that we need to make when we have the problem of having enough data that we would be successful, right? But then it is at that level of there are people that actually care about my system and it's uptime. So I need to to be more careful. I'm reminded of a recent blog post by Wojtek Mach where he was talking about two different ways of doing those migrations. And one is having a separate set of migrations to do those uh, schema-style what a schema is a difficult word because like within postgres there's a schema and within elixir there is a schema and there are different things uh but there is to make those underlying database changes structure changes in a different way so it can be done at runtime and more like david was doing but in a more not so manual way right yeah please don't p-sql into your production databases like <laughs> <laughs> avoid that at all costs i liked that dash bit blog a lot. I, I, it's just like, this is a problem that everybody hits into at some point, right? But I really like the idea of, they talk about how you can point the ecto migrate to a different directory of migrations. So you could have your regular migrations that migrate the schema or the structure of the tables. And then you can have a different, an entirely different directory that just migrates data that you don't even have to run in migration if you don't want to, or you could. But at least locally, what what I've seen from time to time is someone will make some big changes and they'll write some random module script that migrates the data for you, but then like nobody else on the team knows about it. And so then they'll go run something locally, they'll pull master and like a bunch of stuff is broken, a bunch of tests are broken because some field doesn't exist how it should be. And you're like, what's go? Hey, you get on Slack, like, why are all my tests broken? Like, oh, run random module dot migrations dot 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 this thing. <laughs> and it'll fix it like, oh, okay. But so like, at least you could put those things into a place and then on your local box, you could have it set up to run those migrations automatically. So you don't have to care per se, what the other team member was doing, and you'll just always be up to date locally. 
I don't know if I would automatically run those in production. I think that kind of goes against what we're saying here. But at least locally, there's like a pattern and a place that they're all at. Yeah, we've felt that problem. And that is because of this blog post, we're like, we need to do this because we've seen this issue. Yeah. Yeah. What I usually do in such a case is create a script as a regular code. I mean, creating an extra function in the newly created module. The function will do whatever you need to do. For instance, it will update a new field in old records. I also write a test for it as the first, of course, to make sure that it does what it should. And then actually you have two options. You can either create a pull request or merge request in GitLab, uh, merge it to the master, deploy it to the production and execute the function from IEX. Or you can just hot swap the entire module with the function into the IEX and also execute the function from there. Thanks to that approach, we operate on already started up application and we don't need to be worried about problems connected with long running transaction, which prevents users from using specific functionalities of our system. Nice. It's a good tip. When you say hot swap the code, do you mean yep. like hot code reload or like copying and pasting the, the module? In? Yeah, it's like copy and pasting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works perfectly. But you know, that's why you create a pull request to keep these changes which you usually run on production in your repo. So yeah. anyone from your team can check what actually you executed on the production. Yeah, I think uh, thinking back to like how I've done those kind of things, it's it's usually like this coordination, like two or three or four or five people. If it's more than that, then something's busted and everyone's in trouble. But we all hop on a Zoom and somebody's controlling the console. Somebody has the magical right access to production somewhere. <laughs> and we're all watching their screen very carefully. It's like, uh, yes, there are no typos. Uh, that's the latest version. No, 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 wait, actually, he here, I'm going to ping you the, the latest one, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And they, they, yeah, copy that kind of stuff. But you're right, like, it typically doesn't live in the repo. It's like in a series of like Jira issues or Basecamp or you know, con some Kanban somewhere. So I do enjoy the fact that like, yeah, this is good checked in code. It's got like proper code review. If you have like a staging uh, area that you're able to like run this on your own, you know, to practice that kind of stuff and copy and paste like the results uh, in there. And and I'd say like when you go through that process, like just as a solo developer, it still instills into your your mind like to do the normal things that you would do. Like like if you're in the console and you're looking for feedback, like you would say that I'm looking for this message back to indicate some success. Or if it's a long running thing. To make sure that it hasn't hung, you might like periodically log like, okay, I'm on, I'm on chunk 500, I'm on chunk 600 and keep on going. Like in an automatic migration, you may not see that, but in one of the, in, in some other like checked in code, that's like doing this in batches or something like that. Like you're more likely to start logging more info. So that way when other people are watching it run, you can, you know, ensure that it's, it's doing the right thing. Yeah. So the next tip I really like is uh, multi-stage deploys. And this is something that is a consideration when you're dealing with a production system and you're trying to avoid service interruptions. And so maybe you can give us a, some more explanation around this one. I think it's the best tip <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, so deploying a new version of our software, we want to guarantee a zero downtime deployment, right? 
Now someone would say, okay, but I use Kubernetes and it's got a rolling update, which lets us deploy the new version of our application without downtime. Okay, they are right. When it comes to that part, Kubernetes handles it perfectly. But what if you want to deploy code which adds a new field to the table and the logic which uses it? We have to also take care about updating this field for old records, right? If we handle updating these records in migration, we face the problem uh, I've just discussed. Namely, the logic will be visible instantly for the users so they can use it, but the field or just the column from the table won't be visible until the migration finishes. So each time users will try to register or do whatever requires this new field, they get an error as the logic invokes to the column which doesn't exist yet. To avoid that, we decide to update old records executing the hotswap function from IEX as I recommended. Remember, it can take a few minutes between starting up the system with our new code and executing in IEX the function which updates the new field in old records. What's more, updating itself can also take several minutes. And during that time, users are able to use the new logic, new functionality, which requires this new field. It means that each time they try to use it, they get an error, as our logic is not able to do what they need, as the field is of value nil. So how can we handle that? And here, I think, with the help comes multi-stage deployment, which guarantees zero downtime deployment. So you, create, you, you would add something, deploy it, and then in order to migrate it, were you saying that you paste the, your migration into IEX to run it? Uh, yes, a script. I mean, it's not the migration itself. It's like a script, the module with the function which... Uh, do what we, uh, the function which does what we need to do, like update new field or do something. So that, so you, the part that does the data migration, you guys will write it and test it, and then you'll paste it in, go into prod and paste it in and run it there. Yes, you are right. I mean, firstly, uh, we test that on a staging environment to make sure that it works properly. Of course, we have, uh, it tested. Uh, to increase chances of success. And that's all when it comes to that part. Okay. And then at that point, you can go ahead and deploy the code that actually uses the new field and everything should work and no downtime. That's great. Okay. I mean, when it comes to generally multi-stage deployment, you should use four steps, I guess. So the first one, uh, as you said, uh, we deploy to production a migration which adds the new field. Then we deploy new code which sets this new field for new records. So from that moment, we don't need to care about new records in our table as each of them has this field with a proper value as we have deployed the logic which updates it. Now we need to update this new field for, for all two records, the ones which have this field nil. Due to that, as the first step we deployed the module with the function which updates this new field. Then we exec IEX and run this function. And from now, all the data are up to date. Each record in our table has this field with a proper value. What's more, the new records are inserted with also a proper value. 
So now the only thing we need to do is to deploy the code, the logic, which uses this new field. And we do that as the last step, actually. I've had to do that procedure a couple of times. And yeah, it's it saves your bacon. You definitely want to do that. And I think it takes a lot of self-discipline too, because like that's a lot of steps. And sometimes you just want to get the thing done. You've been working on it for a long time. You just want to get the thing done. You just want to deploy it in one swoop. You know, uh, such an approach does take more planning, without a doubt. Nevertheless, we should remember that part of our job is to provide reliability of systems and applications. So I think that we shouldn't bother ourselves with it. The difficult part is knowing that when it's necessary, you know, because local environments are like always, almost always like bare bones, like not like 100,000 rows or something like that. So when you run it, you know, you're just trying to get it to work. When you run it locally, it's just like, boom, done. But, (laughs) and sometimes even staging may not even have a lot of records. And so you don't, (laughs) unfortunately, I think some folks probably more often than not, like will find that it becomes a problem in production because that's where all the data really lives and they can't, like it's a it would be a, a bad practice for them to like dump production into their local database because of like personal information or something like that, something like that. So it, it, having the foresight to know when to check for that is also important. I've that's that's it's hard to remember. I do remember one time I worked with a a, a guy who's really talented operations, and he set up the staging environment that had a replicated production data. And this is dealing in a compliance environment as well. So most people weren't supposed to have access to that data. But what that let us do is like we had like, you know, the, the playground kind of sandboxy kind of place to deploy and, and test stuff. But then it would, before going to production, it would go to staging, which was a mirror of production data. And we would encounter issues that just because of, you know, the the nature and age of the database where data had been migrated and some rows were in a funky state. It was kind of unexpected and it prevented us from hitting downtime and hitting those errors in production. So that was a thing I really enjoyed. That was a good tip too. Yeah. So lesson learned, have a good staging environment. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead on to the next one where you talk about this tip of renaming tables using Postgres views. So I'd love to hear about that one and kind of what that means for you. Let's imagine that we have two instances of our application. Now, while deploying the new version of our software, we use rolling update as always. So the version of our application is updated incrementally. First, the old instance is terminated and replaced with the new one, which contains new code. Then if this new instance started up properly, uh, the second instance, which still contains the old code, is terminated and replaced with the new one. It means that there is a moment when we have two versions of our application, which can be used by users. Usually it's not a problem, unless we deploy a migration which renames the table name. As I said first, there is created the first instance with the newly deployed code. This new code renames table name and has a logic which uses this new name of the table. And it's fine. But as you remember, there is a short period of time until the second replica is created. In this time, users can send a request which will be handled by the second replica, which has old code, the one which uses the old name of the table, which actually doesn't exist anymore. It was changed by the migration run in the first instance of our application. 
And what is most important, both instances of our application use the same database. It means that until the second instance is replaced with the new one, each request handled by handled by it will trigger errors as the code uh, refers to the table which doesn't exist anymore. But there is, of course, solution uh, uh, with uh, PostgreSQL view. I guess uh, I wonder if you have any other solutions for that problem. If I understand the approach, then it's basically like using a view to kind of create an alias to say, well, I want to rename this and call it this instead. But like creating that view is like instantaneous, right? And then so you can have the backward compatible, you're going directly to the old table name and the new version is the new view. I think that's great. I have not done that before, but I I like that one. Yeah, I can't think of a time where I've had to rename a table. Yeah, I think I've just lived with poorly named tables. Or, you know. <laughs> yeah, my solution is to rename the module and don't worry about the table name. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what I've done. So I like that tip about the views. Let's do the next tip on renaming a field. So the last one was on tables, this one's on fields. And so what was your suggestion on how we can solve this one? Let's take the previous example, the one with two instances of the application. If we deploy a migration which renames field name, we will face the same problem. The second instance of the application with old version of code will use the old name of the field which doesn't exist anymore in our database. Instead of renaming the currently existing field, which can cause the problem I've just mentioned, we can just create a migration which adds a new field with the new name and write in this migration an SQL query, which updates this new field with the value of the field which we want to rename. What's more, we need to add the logic which will update this new field for new records. Of course, to avoid problems which I discussed today, we should deploy everything in steps which I described, because the migration can be processed for a while, and if we also deploy a new logic, it will use this new field which might be not ready yet as the migration will be not finished. Yeah, so that's a good tip there. Um, just on creating a new field and moving the data over to it, it like in that multi-stage deploy. I really do think that multi-stage deploy is one of those, you mentioned that as being like one of the uh, most powerful tips perhaps in this list. A lot of these other approaches can be used in those multi-stage deploys. And so I just find those as being something very helpful when you're thinking about production systems and needing to have uh, like 100% uptime or close to it. Yes, you're right. We we can combine all of them, all of these tips. But the most important one is uh, multi-stage deployment. All right. Well, I want to encourage you, dear listener, to check out his blog post, which can be a great resource if you're thinking about wanting to dig into some of these a little bit more, look at some code to kind of back up some of the understanding. And Patrick, thank you for sharing this information. And just, you know, as you've discovered it and you're learning wisdom from your team, you're sharing that. I appreciate that. It just helps us all grow in the process. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate that. And you are right. Learning from other people's mistakes is really important. That's why we should remember how crucially sharing our knowledge. Uh, we should get into the habit of writing blog posts, taking part in podcasts, conferences, and so on and so forth as these sources of knowledge are so valuable for all of us. And thanks to them, we are actually where we are. 
Well, Patrick, if people want to follow you or learn more about you online, what's the best way to do that? You can find me on Twitter at Patrick Buck, and I think it's the best way to get in touch with me. So feel free to send me a message or tweet on me. I'm open to discussions. Great. We'll have links to where you can find him on Twitter, GitHub, and his blog in the show notes. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.